know trauma lives in the body. But what I think is so important that is sort of missing is so does three billion years of intelligence. So does intuition, instincts, passion, longing, sensibility, compassion, purpose. All of those things start coming in forms of aliveness once we start connecting with the body. And especially if we have a guide or a coach or, you know, a, a somatic practitioner, because most of us, in order to survive, do something we call armoring. And so we have to kind of to survive, we have to, we'll call it toughening up, but it's not really the best term. It's kind of armoring. So there are places in the body where we sort of disconnect or numb or brace or clench in order to, you know, try to navigate challenging life or challenging trauma in childhood or various situations. So we kind of dampen down our own aliveness in order to survive. And part of a healing process is kind of coming back to life. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, today I am so excited to introduce you to therapist and on-site guide, Connie Lawrence. Lindsay and I got the opportunity to sit down with her and talk all about one of our favorite topics here at OnSite, somatic therapy and embodiment. I know that the word embodiment has become a bit of a buzzword. Some of my favorite thinkers on this topic have become really vocal and it's come into the public vernacular. And I'm really thankful. In my own journey, it has been transformational to stop bifurcating myself into mind and body and really come together and embody all that I am. So I'm grateful for this conversation and how practical Connie was able to make it as we talked about the importance of coming into our bodies, learning how to recognize our feelings within ourselves, and how somatic movement and community can change our lives. I'm so grateful for this conversation, and I can't wait for you to meet Connie Lawrence. Hey everyone, we are here today with Connie Lawrence. Connie is one of our on-site guides. And so Connie, just thank you for joining us. Would love everyone to just get to know you. And to start us off, how did you first get connected with on-site and what do you like about being a guide? Well, funny you should ask. I'm like old school and I got on-site brochures probably 20, 25 years ago when they were those beautiful, glossy, inviting brochures. And I probably mm. drooled over them and, you know, imagined. Originally, I had imagined, gee, I would love to go there and be part of a program. And then as I transitioned. Right my career. And I then became in the kind of the guide-like profession. I, I worked my yeah. way into uh, social work therapy and experiential therapies. Then I began to say, ooh, maybe one day, I wonder if I could ever be one of those people, one of those guys. So that's been sitting in my heart for a long time. 
And just in the pandemic, I happened to reach out to OnSite about something and one thing led to another and there we were. I love it. And so you've been a part of the team since kind of like 2020, 2021. Is that right? That's right. You said you kind of got into the somatic space. So what did the first part of your career might've looked like and what kind of pulled you into the, you know, wanting to learn more about experiential and bring that into your practice? So I actually came from the corporate world. I was several decades in the corporate world. And uh, once upon a time, maybe 27, 28 years ago, I went to a similar type of program. And I remember feeling like I had come home. I remember feeling like these people speak my native tongue that somehow I want more of this, but I never saw it as possible because I was too much in the corporate world and I was kind of the breadwinner. Uh, Long story short, about 10 years later or so, I crossed the bridge into mental health. And then I stumbled back into psychodrama around uh, 17, 18 years ago. And the rest is history. Um, So making a career transition like that from the corporate world into therapy and a practice, what what was that like? You mentioned you were the breadwinner and so... That, you know, I know a lot of times there is pressure around that. And um, I, in my own personal story, I feel like when I've made big transitions, usually I live in like a period of unsettledness for a season. And then it finally kind of gets uncomfortable that I'm like enough that I'm going to like, I actually have to act on this and make a change. So I just would love to hear about your process and transition because I know that that's a theme that comes up a lot for people. And a lot of times that's how they find themselves at onsite is that they kind of are like in the midst of a transition or know they need to make a change. So any words of encouragement and just tell us your own story around that? Well, you know, I, I loved what I did for... I I was in the industry I was in for 22 years, and I liked it for most of the time. Uh, But I traveled a lot, and I began to think, man, you know, do do I want to be a a little old lady, you know, driving around selling stuff? And uh, that didn't look like a good option. And I honestly, it sounds a little funny, but I've never dreamt of retiring. I always dreamt of having more fun in what I do. I love that. So it just, like you said, there was kind of this growing discontent And um, I remember it was really late in the summer season. I had this notion about going to grad school and making the transition into social work. And I got the last seat in the class. I was right up to the wire, got the last seat in the class. The only thing I can say was sheer terror. It was just a a scary change. Um, Somewhere inside, I knew that it had to happen, but... It was scary. It was a, you know, blind faith and a big leap. And I've never looked back, but I feel like that's kind of how change is for me. There's very often just, you know, a terrifying element to it. I resonate with that. I think um, I often, my body sometimes knows that change is coming before I do. Like I can sense it and I've started to pay attention and kind of see those markers of like, oh, some change is coming and it has to happen. And it almost becomes a a compelling feeling of like this change. I'm throwing my body into it because I can't not. Um, so I love right. to hear that, that it was just the right thing. And I love the idea of not retiring, just having more fun. And so we are so grateful that we get to 
to have you at Onsite. That's so cool. One of the things, one of the experiential modalities that we love at Onsite, and I know that you are also passionate about, is just kind of the somatic. And even when we say that word, I was wondering if you could could describe to us, like, what is somatic? What does that mean? And what does it mean in a therapeutic context? Oh, great. I'm so happy you asked that. So somatic, the, comes, the Greek word is soma, that means really the whole of a living organism. And so in this culture, we kind of divide it like mind, body, and spirit as though they were three separate buckets uh, that maybe once in a while overlap. But a, a somatic, at least in the discipline, in the training that I have, we sort of approach it as though the soma is kind of all of who we are. So that our bodies are, in the words of Richard Strozzi, the shape of our aliveness. And so in our soma is our feelings, our sensations, our intelligence, the actions we can take or can't take, our perceptions, Mm. all those things are kind of in the bundle. And so uh, when I think of somatics, I think of, you know, just where you're connected to the wisdom, the sensations of the body, as much as mm. the other things like feelings or thoughts. It's interesting. Is the, the whole idea of soma and the wholeness of ourselves, like that you're describing, is this sort of like newer learnings? I know that I've heard our team talk about how we're learning so much right now, uh, even post 9-11 about trauma and the effects of trauma and the, and the way that the brain works. And just curious if this is sort of somewhat ancient tradition or is it just sort of new mm. science and learning or somewhere in between? Oh, good question. perfect question. I think it's both. Without making this a boring history lesson, that uh, Descartes, I think of the 1600s, if I've got the time right, Descartes yeah. was the, the guy that elevated reason and logic. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think therefore I am. And that was kind of the dawning of the age of logic and reason. And it's kind of a fascinating journey of how the Western culture became disembodied. And we worshipped logic and reason and almost disowned anything related to the body as though it's sinful or dirty or like we have to power over and we have to kind of master mm. uh, these domains. Almost like you're suspicious of feelings or yeah. systems, right? It's treated almost like with a disdain or um, kind of like the evil you know, the evil something. And so animal instincts, you know, that kind of thing. And even to this day, like the last 75 years, we've had this, the notion of mind over matter. And most Mm -hmm. of the culture, the kind of the ideas are that we, our brain, our cerebral brain powers over our body and our feelings. So really, all we have to do is think our way out of everything is kind of the notion, right? Yeah, definitely. We treat feelings like bad children, you know, shoo them away, Mm. manage, cope, and all that kind of stuff. So what I've been seeing is, like you mentioned, trauma. 
the past mm-hmm. maybe decade or so, science has pointed a lot of arrows toward the body. Like all roads lead to the intelligence of the body. And yeah. so, you know, maybe in the last 10 ish years, we've come to understand that, say, the talking therapies don't quite scratch the surface of trauma. Because trauma lives mm-hmm. kind of like in little pockets that get landlocked in our bodies. And you can't kind of get at them just from talking. As you've been talking, I just feel like I'm like have so many like lights going off and I I want you to finish, but two things came to mind already in your history lesson. One is the idea, the connectivity even with religion and religiosity kind of around the mind and body uh, disconnection that I, I realized some of what my learning is came from sort of the age of reason and some of the things from my faith tradition that said the body is weak, you know, like it's sort of, sort of said we set in my mind of like, Oh, I can't trust this. Like my body is an animalistic body and its impulses would always be wrong kind of. Mm-hmm. So that sort of was like an aha for me. It's super interesting. And then two, I know that our team sometimes uses one of the definitions for trauma that that trauma is a injury to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And then you think about that of of course that's embodied. And then so the healing of course would need to be embodied as well. Mm. So I just thought that's so interesting. I just hadn't so well, connected all the dots before from the disparate conversations until you were talking, Connie. Oh, yeah. great. I mean, that's so well said. So what then started to kind of help bring around the enlightenment or again around the body and uh, where we are now? So I think, you know, one, one piece of it is that the trauma field in general began slowly, like glacial speed, but, you know, point the arrows starting to point toward, oh, we need a different doorway to get to touch on this trauma. We need art therapy or we need psychodrama or we need experiential therapies that you can't outthink it. You can't outsmart trauma. You have to kind of connect to it. You know, Bonnie Badnock Mm -hmm. is one of my heroes. She's an author and a teacher on interpersonal neurobiology. And she says, trauma is like you swallowed something whole and you can't digest Mm -hmm. it. So it sits, gives you, you know, indigestion and it it troubles you all the time. And so part of the healing process with trauma is to begin to metabolize. And to metabolize, we need other people because that's collectively how we process trauma is we need you know, other people. But we also have to be able to connect with where it's kind of landlocked in our system. So you've talked a lot about disembodying. And I think when I started to learn about this concept and kind of dig into it in my own personal life, it feels a little intimidating of like, how do I similar to Lindsay, growing up in a faith tradition that kind of taught me to disconnect it, living, I think, even just in this society, we are rewarded for disconnecting from our bodies. We become human doings, not human beings, as we often say at onsite. And so 
even just the idea that I could listen to my body and tune into my body has been something that I've wasn't even sure where to start. And so if someone's there today, like how do we start to listen to our body and how can we kind of um, take, start that journey back reconnecting? Because it feels like if we have kind of been in this pattern of ignoring it, denying it, disconnecting it, it feels a little intimidating to even start to listen to it. Maybe even woo-woo to say I need to listen to my body. (laughs) Yes, yes. You totally (laughs) woo-woo. I love that question, Mackenzie. I'm going to take one step back and start back and then kind of enter into that answer. In addition to, we know trauma lives in the body. But what I think is so important that is sort of missing is so does three billion years of intelligence. So does intuition, instincts, passion, longing, sensibility, compassion, purpose. All of those things start coming in forms of aliveness once we start connecting with the body. And especially if we have a guide or a coach or, you know, a a somatic practitioner, because most of us, in order to survive, do something we call armoring. And so we have to kind of to survive, we have to, we'll call it toughening up, but it's not really the best term. It's kind of armoring. So there are places in the body where we sort of disconnect or numb or brace or clench in order to, you know, try to navigate challenging life or challenging trauma in childhood or various situations. So we kind of dampen down our own aliveness in order to survive. And part of a healing process is kind of coming back to life and bringing back those numb places and allowing sensation to run through us. Sometimes sensations are feelings we don't like. Yeah. Right? Or, you know, how many of us, if you watch folks that are about to cry, I'm famous for this. I mean, I had, I grew up with the like, don't ever cry message. And it took a long time to kind of unclench my system so the tears could flow. Yeah. And then, even as you said clench earlier, my body went, oh, I like was carrying in a clenched way and I didn't even notice. Exactly. Exactly. As you're talking. (laughs) We're clenched in all kinds of places. Most of us Mm -hmm. or numbed or, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that we've had to do and you don't know you're clenched until you unclench. So Mackenzie, that was a long prelude to the question. How do you start to connect with the body, right? Yeah. So first, I think it helps if you have a somatic practitioner. That that never okay. can hurt, right? Because that's kind of like yeah. having a good fishing Someone guide. To guide you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guide knows the lake and the water and where the rocks are. And so it helps to have a guide that kind of knows the water. The first thing is most of us don't have any vocabulary of sensation. Mm. We don't grow up with it. It's not a language we speak. So we have to really give ourselves grace and compassion and say, oh, this is new language for me. So, yeah. you know, we'll kind of start with that 
premise. And then the other is, just for example, if let's say you're, uh, you're sitting at your computer and you want to take a break and say, hmm, I think I'm going to connect with the body. You might start with sensation usually falls in a category of temperature, pressure, or movement. And so even right mm. now, as we're sitting here in, in the somatic practice that I have, we always do things with eyes open uh, because the idea is we have to navigate in the world and we, we walk in the world mm. with our eyes open. And so it's a little harder sometimes to really feel sensation, but it's part of the challenge of living inside a body and yeah. in the world at the same time. And so just even right now, as we're sitting here and the listeners can do this too, see if you can find some part of your body that is a little warmer and some part that's a little cooler. For example, my legs, my legs are a little warmer and I can feel the skin on my hands is a little cooler. Yeah, it's funny. My arm is cooler. Like there's like a certain place on my arm that feels like degrees cooler than everything else. And my ears kind of feel warm. My ankles are colder and my shoulders are warmer. When you were saying your legs, I assumed you were going to say cold because I was like, oh, mine are cold too. But <laughs> are warm. That's so funny. That's an interesting thing. One, to just even sit here and pay attention to my body. I, I felt this compulsion to close my eyes to be able to connect. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of we have to live and move through the world with our eyes open and to even that nuance of training ourselves to do that, quote unquote, in the real world is interesting. Do you find that, I mean, obviously you find that challenging, but what is, why, why is our temptation to close our eyes and like internal and not to open our eyes? It's interesting. You know, all I can say, Mackenzie, is I think for most of us, it's a lot easier because our, you know, our yeah. visual field takes up a lot of real estate in our brains. And so we're, we're in fact, we're sitting here on a screen and, and I can see your lovely faces and, you know, I'm kind of taking in this view and it's almost, you know, walking and chewing gum kind of thing. Now, it's not cheating to close your eyes. If, if we want to close your <laughs> eyes and that's what we want to do. It's just with the notion that if you want to kind of walk in the world more connected to the body, then it's a good practice to see, can I do this with my eyes open? Can I sit in a meeting and feel my back? I, yeah. I love, like, this is a cool exercise because anyone obviously can just keep their eyes open and become more attuned and aware of, like, what's happening in their body. You also have mentioned several different sort of modalities of somatic work. And I wondered, you know, if somebody is feeling disconnected from their body or disembodied, what are like, what do you feel like a great starting place is for professional support in this area? There are like, for example, somatic experiencing is a whole field of discipline, a whole field of training inside of therapy. And that is always a good thing to look for. My training has been from the Strozzi Institute. And so looking for a Strozzi, S-T-R-O-Z-Z-I, a Strozzi Institute trained coach or leader is, I have a little bias. I happen to like, um, you know, this form. And I would say the only other thing is uh, if somebody's looking for a therapist, usually it'll say in their bio, 
if they've had certain kinds of training. And then, of course, you know, lots of therapists offer, you know, a free interview, a free consultation or something like that to to get the sense. Um, And then there's always kind of the everyday things like yoga or, uh, you know, dance therapy. There's there's things like that that I know people do. So that's oftentimes a good start. Hey, friends, I really hope that you're enjoying this conversation with Connie. I loved it so much because it resonated with the work that I personally began during my on-site Living Centered experience, and frankly, that I continue today. Untangling the beliefs that kept me disconnected from my body and embracing somatic practices has been life transformational for me. If this conversation struck something in you, we would really invite you to find healing at OnSite in the coming months. While we offer a range of transformational experiences designed to help you experience outer change through inner healing, our life-changing group workshops are designed to help you grow and heal within the context of community. Utilizing somatic and experiential modalities, OnSite specializes in helping you discover all of you. Visit experienceonsite.com to explore our offerings or connect with our team at 1-800-341-7432. Even just the tangible practice of like finding moments throughout your day, I think yoga, getting in your body. I've heard people like dancing. And one of the things that I think about, even when you said dancing, this kind of like went in my mind, is that I have been on this journey of like re, you know, just like getting back in my body and the movement. And I'm recognizing that some of the narratives that I carry around movement are tied into my childhood and being like, stop moving, don't be fidgeting. Some of the messages I believe about what it means to be put together and not to like show too much emotion with your body. And so I think it's interesting when we think about some of the narratives that we carry about how we should show up in our bodies. And I'd love to hear you speak to where do some of those narratives come from and how do we start to use this type of work to identify and then in a community context, maybe even heal that. Because I've heard you say that our bodies crave belonging. And when I think about this work, I think it could be really isolating. But what I know is that it's the most powerful when it's in community. So I think that's kind of a roundabout way, but I'm asking this question, but like, why do we need to bring community into this? You know, in this somatic practice that that I have learned, we are never not in community. It's kind of like when we heal, as we heal, you know, our bodies are incredibly wise, I guess. This is my my take here. And the more we start connecting with the life inside our bodies, for me personally and some of my cohort, we begin to feel how interconnected we really are, how interdependent we really are. And, you know, we in the West kind of, we kind of suck at interdependence. We kind of like have this idea of we have a kind of hardened individuality, individualism this idea even even in psychotherapy for the last for for the longest time we used phrases like self-regulation self-soothing self-care self this self that right and now science so individual yeah and it's science is leading us to terms like co-regulation we're mammals and we co-regulate 
we kind of borrow each other's brains once in a while and we lean on each other and say, hey, am I crazy over here? Can you tell me? That's kind of how we mammals operate. We're pack animals. Mm. And so I believe personally that, you know, there's kind of an adage that like to do something hard, you have to stand on your own two feet. You have to be self-contained. You have to be la la la. You have to be authentic and really stand true. That is true. We can take a piece in that. And I would add, and we need allies. We need people who have our backs. We need people who get us. And if we're going to buck a headwind and we're going to do something really brave and daring, we just kind of need somebody who gets it. And that's what science really points out. I was listening to a podcast a few minutes ago, and it was talking about sort of how many people feel like they don't have like even one close friend. Mm. Uh, um, They don't have that ally that you're talking about. And so I'm curious, one, what you think is getting in the way of that for people. And then two, what are some practical things that people can do to try to find someone that they can let their guard down with and that can be an ally for them? That that is such a a strong cultural message, such a strong cultural. um, I don't know if you just saw the Surgeon General's report about the loneliness epidemic. And so, you know, we're on site, you guys, as always, are right on it. You're right on top of the trend. And I think it's, it's hard. And I wish I had a perfect answer. I really do. Because especially post-pandemic, many of us are struggling to get back out, to get reconnected. People find, I, mean, I think that's why 12-step meetings have always been so valuable. On-site has mastered the ability to bring people into belonging. I mean, when people join uh, the Living Center program or any of the programs, many people feel belonging for the first time in their lives because you create a safe space for, you set the rules and the guidelines so that people can safely connect. And that, my personal belief Uh, which will get you, you know, this in a, you know, five bucks will get you a cappuccino. But (laughs) my personal belief is that belonging was the original drug of choice for humans. Because every culture has rituals, dancing, drumming, carnivals, drum circles, wows, festivals. Every culture has ways of enhancing the feeling of belonging. And having people, allowing people to entrain and tell stories and be part of the campfire. So it's, it's overlooked, I think, as a medicine. I wish I had an easy answer. You know, I, I think that what we do at onsite and, and that, those kind of environments are pure medicine. I think the therapy comes second and all of it rides on the rails of belonging. Yeah, it's so interesting. The podcast interview that I was listening to, David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist and speaks a lot uh, around uh, societal issues and trends, he called humans relationship building machines, which I thought Mm. was such a a cool way of thinking about it. And I do think that is our, for so many of us, and maybe all of us, like you're saying, it's just the drive Mm. that's innately in us. 
And I, I'm noticing even in my own life that I'm in this season post-epidemic and where there's like a lot of life change happening for me and everyone around me, that it feels like harder to have sort of the depth of relationships I crave. You know, like mm. it, it actually felt like during the pandemic, it was nice because the world kind of got smaller. And for me, yeah. at least, I had like a few people that I was like deeply entrenched with. And there was yeah. something very nice about that. Then moving from like all the people and kind of just keeping, trying to keep all the balls in the air. And now I feel like I'm back to sort of a wider circle, but not experiencing the depth I want. And again, because everyone feels like they're going through it right now, whatever it is, that instead of letting that be something where we can support one another, it just seems like there's not enough. No one has enough capacity for each other. And so I'm just, but you reminded me of Onsite and some of the magic of the work we do there is, I think that it is like, how do we figure out relationally how to lean into each other's in those seasons of like overwhelm and need mm-hmm. instead of out? And so yeah. I don't know, is it just going first? Connie, any advice for me personally or listeners that are sort of in that same place of like, hey, I I need people in this season because it feels like a lot and I don't want to be lonely or alone in it, but I don't have the capacity that I normally have to initiate or to Mm. sort of pursue. And I think for me, Lindsay, I feel like if I'm going through it and I know someone else is going through it, I don't want to add to their plate. But I think what we've learned from the onsite experience is like everyone comes in with their own quote unquote junk. And the beauty is, is that we hold it together so that it feels less heavy. And I don't often apply that to my own life. So Connie, tell us how we can do that yeah. in our own lives. We're going to take notes. <laughs> turn turn this into our own therapy hour, Connie. <laughs> you know, I wish I knew, you know, I, I yeah. really wish I knew, you know, what, what I started to say years ago is. You know, when you get those really deep connections, like you get it on site, they're like espresso. You get you hooked on them and then everything else just tastes kind of watery. It's like it doesn't hold the same depth and satisfaction that we're craving. And so I don't know the answer. I could tell you I struggle with it, too, because there there is something so rich about that kind of connection. And once you have it, nothing is quite the same. And my experience has simply been that it's kind of rare air to have people that can really drop in deep with you. And then you got to just kind of, you know, lap it up when you can have it. Yeah, that's good. Cherish what you got and nourish what you got. One of the um, biggest things that I've taken away from this conversation is just the the trusting in and the the wisdom, like the wisdom of community, the wisdom of other people, and even the wisdom we carry within ourselves. I loved when you talked about that earlier of like, well, you carry, you know, millions of years of wisdom in your body. And something that we often talk about at Onsite is how we carry um, the trauma of generations before us, but I've never thought about the beauty and the wisdom that we carry of the generations before us. Like we talk about, um, it's, it's fresh in my head because one of our clinicians, Carlos, um, experientially showed it the other day at an event we were at of 
that you can take mice and give them a stimulus, have them smell something and then shock them. And then um, like the a cherry blossom. And so then they'll have a, a nervous system will have a reaction. And then if you have their next generation never having been shocked with that connection to that cherry blossom, but when they smell the cherry blossom, then they have a reaction. And then the third generation has a reaction and how we carry the hard stuff that we then have to heal. But I love the idea of we also carry beauty within us and resilience from the generations before who have done that work. And so I don't think I have a question in that. I think I just am am grateful for this conversation and this reminder of what we carry all of us from the people before us who have gone before us and kind of done that hard work. So it's encouraging Mm -hmm. for me to do the work for myself, but also encouraging for me to recognize and, and speak to like, what, what am I, what, what wisdom do I carry that I'm not tapping into? That makes sense. Yeah, totally. In fact, I'd be happy to share with you my most recent episode of what really led me to this chapter of somatics. And even I'm writing a book. Yeah. But it had to, love do to hear it. with, this is just my personal story of kind of like this. I, you know, being in the field of psychodrama, we're inherently a little more embodied than the your mm-hmm. average guy. And because uh, we're yeah. kind of moving around and we're connected to to what's in the body. So I kind of thought I was, you know, hip and embodied. And this goes back about three years ago. I ended up in this lovely romantic relationship that just seemed perfect, it was fun and thrilling and exciting and all the things that you look for. And I would say about eight or nine months in, I I happen to be a a journaler. I wake up in the morning, drink coffee and, you know, write in a journal. And sometimes it's absolute dribble. Sometimes it's just absolutely nothing. But I start to write in journals. So disciplined. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's it's all in the coffee. So long story short, in this lovely relationship, I began to realize that there were problems in the relationship that we were not discussing. They weren't talked Mm. about openly. And in somatic language, I have a habit of swallowing problems, of being Mm. nice, polite, and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of living in the shape of an apology. And so there were Mm. lots of things I kind of wasn't dealing with. And eventually I ended up suffering health issues. I ended up having digestive problems, gut health issues. And at first I wasn't Mm. connecting the two. I kind of did the old Google search and, hmm, what have I eaten? What have I not eaten? Am I drinking enough water? All those kind of things. I did all of that. Bottom line was it took a while for me to put the things together and to realize that my gut was much, as I said, smarter than I was. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. And um, it, it kind of showed up in my journal and I started to track symptoms and I started to draw pictures and I started to get much more animated. And it was hard for me to face that there were some issues in the relationship that were hard to deal with. But the long story short was I did end up having to kind of face right into some hard conversations. And turns out that the relationship didn't work out. But the love story happened because I started to fall in love with the intelligence of my body. And I realized that my body led me out of the burning building. 
that there was an element to this relationship that was pretty unhealthy and it, you know, wasn't going to work. And there was something happened where I began to connect with the wisdom that I knew in really eventually in my bones. And what I think is, you know, if I, if I say to you, I know this X, Y, Z, whatever it is, I know it in my heart. Feel how that lands in you. And if I say, uh, this thing that I know, I know it in my gut. I just, my gut knows this. And then finally, what happens if I say, I know this in my bones, you know, you're like, oh, don't mess with that. Yeah. They're all different. Yeah. In colloquial, we use them, but I think we, we just use them and we know it's true, but we don't think about what that means. Are there, it made me think when you were telling that story about sort of the swallowing, it being the posture that you were in, is there sort of like within a somatic framework, a way that you could look at like seven different sort of postures of your body so that people could start to see that for themselves of like, oh, like in this stage, I'm sort of, hey, like very aware of that I'm swallowing a lot of my words or... In this season, I'm sort of overly standing in sort of opposition to something or whatever the different sort of postures would be. I just am imagining that would be such a helpful tool of like being able to be like, oh, I do, I do that. You know, that's where I am. Oh, my gosh. That is a perfect question. You know, we were talking a minute ago about how do you start to connect with the intelligence of the body? And one of the things is, just beginning to learn somatic language. And that takes a while. So that's why we have to be kind to ourselves and realize, oh, this is foreign language. I need like the Berlitz somatic language for travelers kind of thing. I need a translator. Yeah. It's, it's, it's new language and we're kind of have to get old. So for example, if I say to somebody, what's happening in your body? When we're new, we say, well, you know, I'm feeling a little anger. Like I can feel some anger. Mm. My job as a somatic coach is to kind of keep building that awareness. So what's the sensation? What tells you that it's anger? What are those sensations? So over time, somebody might say, you know what? It, I could, it's, there's some heat in the back of my throat. It's kind of moving from my chest. Mm-hmm. I can feel a clenching in my jaw. I can feel my stomach tightening. There's some little heat up the sides of my neck like that. So that's a little more advanced when you get to know what your, how your body moves in situation. And how, what did you say the three like um, sensations were? Temperature, pressure, and movement. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Even just knowing those three, I think, opens up your language and your conceptualization of how do you feel rather than just like, I feel angry, but like, what sensation do I feel what temperature, where do I feel, what's pressure, what's the movement, yeah. it's so interesting. It's, that's right, like, so if you were to think about movement, like, if you just right now, if we tune in, can you, can you, you know, you can start to look for, is there some place in my body where I feel movement, I feel a little bit of a pulse, or I feel a little bit of streaming, mm. or I feel like the bottoms of my feet feel like there's some little minnows, there's a little bits of sensation kind of tingling on the bottom. So like that, you begin to build the language. The other thing that I think is really a, a fascinating study, you know, some people collect 
stamps and coins years ago. I collect somatic sayings because they really tickle me. But we use things in language like teeth gnashing or, Mm. yeah, really, it really knocked me off balance. I lost my footing. So I often suggest that we watch for those phrases and see if you can use them because they land with you, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or I got a chill up my spine. Or um, I, f- I feel kind of pulled in a lot of directions right now. Or that made me feel like I want to throw up. Or, you know, <laughs> there, there are a lot of them. That's funny. I mean, the gut. Like, I just things that we don't even, that we use and somatically know, but don't process it as... Right, exactly. And so we can start to listen for them and start to use them. Like that was a gut punch. Or, you know, that yeah. That just that just knocked me off my feet. I love it. Honey, this has been such a incredible conversation. I really love it. And I one of the things that we ask is that if you have a practice that keeps you centered, um, and you shared that you journal in the morning. So is that your practice or is there another practice that you kind of consistently do in your life to stay centered? Well, there is. Um, there's actually a couple of them because in in the in the Strozzi work, one of the core pillars of our work is practices. So one pillar is daily practices. One is that building that constant somatic awareness. So we're constantly tracking sensation. And the other is something called somatic opening, which is kind of when the body relaxes and and um, releases some trauma or some, you know, locked patterns that keep us stuck. So we do have a, you know, a centering practice and then a few other practices to kind of keep connected to being present and open. I love that. Connie, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to get to talk to our guides and to get to know them better. And this has just been such a treat to spend some time with you. Oh, thank you both. The treat has been mine. I have just really loved this and um, I love the team. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.